0: This is the Permaculture Podcast, I'm Scott Mann. What does it mean to go back to the ground and learn the fading skills necessary to work the forest with our hands? To read the land assisted by tools we cite with our own eyes? To create new visions of old roles, such as a land steward or cottager? I explore those thoughts and more with my guest today, Hazel, who some of you may know as Tom Ward, a longtime permaculture practitioner He remains one of the few people who I feel comfortable calling an elder in the community. As you'll hear during the conversation today, he carries an impeccable reputation and is known for his respect for people and for the land. Ask around among your circles, and you'll likely hear this echoed by someone whose life was impacted by Hazel's work as a teacher and storyteller to generations of permaculture practitioners, which is kind of funny because in this digital age, he's not always the easiest person to find. Drawing from his breadth of experience, Hazel shares with us the importance of putting away the gadgets and technology and embed ourselves in a deep sense of place, to listen and be part of the land around us, and to work with those who are ready. Enjoy this conversation and I'll join you afterward.
1: I was raised a plainclothes Quaker in South Glens Falls, New York, in a farming background. So I started doing garden farming at five years old and selling vegetables door-to-door, a little red wagon. And then I apprenticed at 10 years old in um, working with wildflowers and wild plants and bringing them into rock gardens in my yard. So I was both gardening for market and I was working on native polycultures, and this was in the 50s. And then when I was 10 years old, this woman, Mae Barton, who was my god-grandmother, Because my grandmother Hazel died suddenly, really helped me out because I was other as a child, and that helped me become a nature nerd. Then through my Quakerism, I got involved in medical relief to Vietnam and ended up a political refugee on the West Coast in Oakland, California. In Oakland, I was Fairly heartbroken because I was on Nixon's subversives list and I was uh, blacklisted for graduate school and all work. But nonetheless, I was hired to teach college at Laney College off the street, and um, it was difficult to get a paycheck. But I started teaching a course called Wild Edible Plants and Woods Lore in 1971. And I refer to it as proto permaculture because I was teaching. Whole systems ecological thinking, and I had buses and field trips and anthropological movies. So I quickly became knowledgeable on the West Coast and started doing farm design in 1971. And then worked on a number of organic farms in the California Valley and worked for a collective called Ma Revolution's Natural Foods Collective, where we were doing farm to city. Direct vegetable deliveries. And um, so that was a little bit ahead of its time. So when the permaculture course came along to the West Coast in 1982, I was actually invited to attend and I was paid for. And that put me in a position with Bill Mollison to sort of co teach the first course at Evergreen State College in Washington. And Bill really pushed me around. Because he saw that what I didn't have was design mind. Instead, I was just a techie. And that really challenged me. Now, if I can jump way ahead, because I then ended up teaching in various places around the world and training a lot of people. I was one of the originals, we might say. I now am concerned about focusing on design in permaculture. I think we should focus on shores and maintenance. So there's the short version.
0: And I've been interested in sitting down to talk with you ever since I took my teacher training as when I was out in Oregon and talking with Andrew Millison and then others through producing the show over the years. Your name is one that continually comes up as just someone that everyone turns to and has a good regard and a very healthy reputation that follows you and your work from all the years that you've been practicing. And yet there's not a whole lot of media out there that I could turn to to find out a lot about what you were doing. It was through kind of this whisper network of everyone who had known you over the years. And when I would ask for referrals and things, your name just continually rose to the top of that. And so I'm really fascinated to be able to sit down and talk with you today because of having such a long history in this movement and so much more across the country and the world when it comes to sustainable and integrated systems. And I'm wondering, as you say, this movement away from design to focus on the chores and the maintenance, what does that look like? And what is your current work then around this and the other ideas that captivate your thoughts and imagination after all these years of experience?
1: Uh, Well, thank you for all that. I decided, I suppose, in the early 70s, because of things that were happening politically in the Bay Area, to go to the ground. I now call that deep local. And this is why you don't see me on the stage internationally with a lot of media, because I'm not hustling to fly around the world to teach big courses. Instead, I have been living below the poverty line in the Siskiyou Mountains, And occasionally being invited to go teach, I taught at Hartwood Institute in Garberville, California for 11 years and trained a lot of people. So I understand how I'm in the thread and, and eventually you get back to me if you ask questions. But I haven't tried to really be a rock star out there. I've just been working on the ground. And the work I'm doing on the ground is at Wolf Gulch Ranch which is a pocket desert in the Little Applegate Valley, and I've now been there for 20 years. And I'm doing something called social forestry because I'm coming to understand part of my hesitancy using the term design, that what we really need is culture. We need to be working together as humans in order to, well, as Quakers would say, get to truth. I would say, get to accurate and useful ecological observations. This is quite a long task because cultural development takes time, different than silver bullet approach the technological discovery and almost like entrepreneurial design that has those stars around it of the expert. Those are problematic, and there's lots of there, buried in what I just said about hyper-individualism and about building community and about being deeply related to place. And so I just made that choice. I made the choice to live poor, but do real work on the ground.
0: And that's reflective of, I know, quite a few people of kind of like my generation who were born in the, the late 70s through about the mid to late 80s who were making similar kinds of choices. To kind of go to ground and get our hands dirty in whatever it is that our particular focus is, I know some great people who are woods walkers doing landscape restoration, myself trying to be available to have these kinds of conversations with as many people as possible and to share them so people can connect with them and it's interesting to hear that you 've been doing this for so long and engaging in this sense of place and yet are still so <laughs> well known by so many and i 'm just having been in this place for so long and done this work, what kind of things are emerging that you're learning from this process of going deep and going local?
1: I'm learning that, that we're living in difficult times and making the kinds of commitments that I was lucky enough to be able to make because of getting in the right position, ending up with access to land. I have a life lease I don't pay rent. I don't pay taxes. This really frees me up. So access to land is super important. Thus, I'm working on something called a cottager's co-op. And I can go into that a little later, but let me get back to your question. I think one of the most important things to do is build salon, polite conversation amongst neighbors that doesn't need to get anything done. It's an old Celtic phrase, which is everything to do, nothing to get done. It comes from the story Jubal the Bear in the Mabinogian series. And so what we've been doing in the Little Applegate, I call community inventory, which is to take stock of ourselves and take stock of our place, but not broadcast it. Keep it Home. Keep it on paper. One person in this case has a collection of 40 posters and lists. And so as we try to do community inventory and build community in our neighborhood, what we find is high turnover, people having difficult lives and having to change and not a lot of stability and We are living in a time, which I use the homeopathic term, a time of aggravation. This is a difficult emotional time. And staying focused requires or is helped by nature immersion. And I am so lucky to be living in a wilderness ranch with lots of nature immersion, grounded that way. It keeps me healthy. And then go out into the world, drive into town, have a podcast with you or to meet with my partners. And so those ideas have led me to teaching these advanced courses, optical surveying and social forestry. And those advanced courses are, we're in a very remote place. And so we don't get a lot of people coming to them. And what I've noticed is there's not a lot of advanced courses being taught. In the permaculture world of North America, they're mostly teacher's trainings and what's called advanced design. So I'm interested in how I think people have a hard time getting out of the abstract and into hands-on place-based skills and grounding because they don't have the time in their life. They don't have the flexibility in their life to actually practice on the ground go to ground, as I said earlier.
0: I could dig into so many of the access issues and other problems that I know that myself and others face with getting land and being able to go to ground. And some of those pieces that many of us are working on trying to figure out from something as simple as, you know, renting some garden space on Craigslist or asking a friend or family member if we can use their backyard to grow something. But that's something that I think we could probably go into for the rest of our conversation today, whereas you've raised two things that I'd really like to know more about. And I was wondering if we could start with the social forestry, because when you were describing that, it reminded me of something that Rico Zook talked about in my teacher training about the need for preparing the communities and the people who we work with for what happens when the designer is no longer on the ground, when the teacher is no longer available to the people who ask them to come in. And how do we kind of work with these kinds of things so that our stories echo for longer than our presence? And I was wondering if you might be able to walk us through some of those ideas before we talk about this concept of optical surveying.
1: My bottom line in social forestry is that the forest misses us and that we have relationships as humans with all other being. And I like to say that Everything has light. Everything has spirit, rocks, trees, air. And I really like the three dimensions that are brought forward in the spell of the sensuous, the horizon, the air, and the earth, the ground, the mysteries, the three mysteries. The real bounding of our lives are these dimensions. They're not the Euclidean dimensions that we actually use in permaculture design. They're palpable dimensions and they're mysterious and messages come in through those through those dimensions through those horizons actually so social forestry tries to put together skills knowledge about forests and about tending with traditional ecological knowledge and another term indigenous ecological knowledge and Traditional ecological knowledge is cultural. It's a collection of stories, like you said. How do our stories live longer than we do? So I've been telling a bunch of stories, and they're on my our primitive website. So they're being recorded. I'm giving these talks. I'm imagining a positive future, and that has really inspired people. And then people have been coming to this social forestry course where we practice community where we practice working together, and we where we practice learning our special skills. So I'm talking about taboos, etiquette, guilds, genders, and how we as humans can sort ourselves into relationships that are functional. So that when we do forestry work without chainsaws, without headphones and hard hats on, we can hear nature, can talk to each other, we can work safely with hand tools, and yet get a lot done. It's labor intensive, but it's very ecologically ameliorative. <laughs> there are other phrases that are similar to that. We have gotten really lucky in the last 20 years to have had the first women anthropologists and scientists make it through their thesis defense, and publish wonderful books. So we've had Nancy Turner, University of British Columbia, with Keeping It Living, several other books. We have Kat Anderson, with Tending the Wild, totally awesome. We have Anne Cameron, also out of British Columbia, Daughters of Copper Woman. We have Robin Wall Kiminer, with Braving Sweetgrass, who happens to have entered the New York State College of Forestry, where I graduated from two years after I graduated. So I relate to her book quite a bit. And we have Dow O'Ryan, one of my colleagues and students with her book. So we have learned about reciprocation. We have learned about giving back. We have learned about multiple products. And so with a lot of crafts, built into social forestry, and with looking for products that come out of ecological management, things that can be skimmed within a context of building resilience in our landscape to fire. And right now, we have two big forest fires that have suddenly blown up since the 4th of July, and our valley is full of smoke, really early this year. So, jumping around. The skills and the crafts that we can make with ecological surpluses in forestry work can replace consumer goods, but they can't compete with consumer goods. I haven't, the only thing I've been able to sell regularly is my artisan charcoal. Baskets, nobody buys them. I like to say that the enemy or the challenge. Social forestry is the plastic bucket. I can't compete with the plastic bucket. It's got me perfect. So, the social forestry course, which I think we've taught for eight years now, maybe a little longer, has spun off these things called winter camps, where the problems they've been having in winter camps are social, are decision making. They're about building culture. So, we are still As Americans, hyper individualistic consumers and anarchistic in the bad sense of anarchism or the rough sense of anarchism, edgy sense. And this is hard to get over. I'd like to encourage people that there is a benefit to giving up this sense of individual power and flash because one can get held in community one can find safety, one can give up a certain amount of anxiety when you get there, when you build that community. This is difficult. And luckily, I have all this Quaker history, and the Quakers go back hundreds of years trying to work exactly this out. How do you do bottom-up democracy with a great deal of respect for everyone, totally inclusive, and get things done? And that Is I think, a big challenge, and it fits right into what I said at the beginning about maintenance and taking care of things, and perhaps the first thing we need to do is take care of each other. I really enjoy this new book that's out by Adrienne Brown called Emergent Strategies. She's a person of color out of Detroit, and this book is thrilling to me because she refers to things I've been involved in all my life, and she's putting them together in this really wonderful permaculture or systems theory way. And that is that the first thing we do is build support networks, like I was saying earlier about community inventory. And then out of those support networks and interactions between support networks, Emerge strategy, things we can do, things we can get our hands on, things that can get done. And I don't know that that's traditional permaculture design. I think this is more spiritual cultural work where we stumble into things and the lights go on and we just pick up our tools and we march out there and we get it done. I love it that perfect timing is the key to good burning, to being able to do cool burning, it's called, the maintenance burning that was done all over the continent, but we know more about here on the West Coast because there's remnants of it. And that ability to say, oh, it's today, we can burn today, is the favorite part of our social forestry course. Everyone who comes to the social forestry course is really looking forward to fire. And so every day I have to say, well, looks like it's going to be two days from now, so let's pay attention. And open burning has always been women's work. So that's an example of a gender-focused, but not gender-exclusive guild, the burning guild, the people who light the fire. And the way that traditional Indigenous people did it was by breaking the grass, and if the snapped in the right way, the fuel humidity was at the right condition. And if the winds are not too bad, in other words, the larger atmospheric context, fuels are good, you're ready to go, and everybody understands their part. So there's the Sawyers Guild, which is also the Fire Lines Guild, and there's the Burning Guild, and there's Oversight, which would be me, (laughs) and Karen and Melanie, the elders, in other words. So there's all these different groups coordinating with each other with a great deal of ecological knowledge, and it gets done safely. And the pictures, there's even pictures on our website of people in tank tops doing open burning. And the groups that are trying to reintroduce fire professionally would be Nature's Conservancy, and luckily, I've had work with the Park Service, which started doing open burning in the 70s, and especially at Lava Beds National Monument, south of Klamath Falls, on grasslands. Your professional, I, I don't know what other term to use, industrial open burning is, it's big. It's, it's machinery, it's water trucks, it's full gear, it's not social, it's, it's militaristic. So I'm making some contrasts here in order to kind of show where we're trying to go with social forestry. And let me repeat again and again, problem is not how to do things. We know how to do things. This is traditional knowledge. Problem is cooperating in community, coming into relationship with each other at the same level as coming into relationship with the work and with the landscape.
0: You speak a lot to something that I've been coming to realization of over the last year or so, is that in many regards, the -the on-the-ground practices and skills that we need to create solutions for many of the issues that we face are all available. We may need to work on synergizing some of them together in order to... Get the results that we might be interested in when it comes to sustainability and regenerative practices and other pieces, but that it's the social and cultural side of this work that has the most to be done as we try to kind of reclaim or reconnect with community as we move through and work in the landscape.
1: Yes, it's true. And I would say we have the knowledge of community building it's just not that accessible. It's difficult. Communities protect themselves. They don't invite in anthropologists. I mean, with all the work I've done with indigenous people around the world, there's a great set of jokes about what you do when you see an anthropologist coming. They're great. They're wonderful. And I'm not going to repeat any of them because some of them are fairly coarse. But. When communities do get their act together, they tend to be insular. They tend to try to avoid broadcasting. I'm, I'm fascinated that the Communities magazine, which lists different intentional communities around the United States, most of the intentional communities are not listed in the Communities magazine. They're just not there. And that's because there are a lot of lost people in America looking for community. They they know what you just said, that this is the work. They don't know where to go to do it. So they show up at the gates of an intentional community. And a lot of these people are troubled. Like I said, we're living in a time of aggravation. We're all a little bit aggravated. So how do we do this? We almost need to get lucky. Like I said, we need to stumble into it. Or we need to read that book, Emergent Strategies, and start working on. These friendship groups. One of my apprentice colleagues is named Heron, Heron Bray, herbalist, and she has run some of these forestry camps I was talking about. And she quotes me as saying, The most important thing we can do is stay home. So there's this great amount of movement, of searching. It's so American, it's so colonialist. And You know, like, let's go someplace else. Let's go find it. And really what we need to do is sit down, go deep local, stay someplace. And that's rough, like you said. How do we get that traction? How do we get that relationship to place? And I think we should talk about that. So I did a big design, which can be seen online, thanks to Andrew Millison with Wolf Gulch Farm. And when I was done with the surveying and with supervising the earthworks machinery, I negotiated for a part of the ranch for a life lease. And that has paid off magnificently. It has allowed me to teach these advanced courses and to develop a fire laboratory that I don't think any university has. I have incredible fire history at Wolf Gulch, 100 150 years of fire history that I can trace and that I can work with. So, that experience of having become the forester at Wolf Gulch Ranch is now, with Heron's help and others, moving towards this cottagers' concept. So, a lot of organic farms in southern Oregon have a little piece of bottomland because we're a mountainous area and a bunch of woodlot, a bunch of forest. And the forest is not being tended because you need to get a product out. So you're farming. So you're using this bottomland soil or you're using bench soils and you're producing food and you're going to market. But meanwhile, you've got an overstocked forest because Indian burning stopped 150 years ago here. And we're explosive. Like I said, we're on fire right now as I am speaking to you. And so there's a lot here, but basically... People who have land, the rentier class, if if you wish, are very wary of people who are not in the same class as them financially. They don't like caretakers. Caretakers scare them. Caretakers are going to make a mess. Caretakers are going to start bossing them around because they're actually on the ground while the landowners are only periodically there, perhaps. So we need to, like, Heal a class gap here by becoming perhaps professional, creating a cottagers' co op, being, I hate to use the terms licensed and bonded, but that equivalent. Contractual would be a better term. Come into a relationship that's safe, where there's good feedback, where there's good communication between landowners and land managers, because I'm also thinking here about so-called commons lands, which are managed by federal and state bureaucracies, sometimes county bureaucracies. This is a complex thing I'm laying out for you here, but I'm showing you where the holes are, right? The holes are that we can get people onto land under a bunch of different concepts so that they can learn to work ecologically and have connections to other people who are doing the same work. That's similar to what Adrienne Brown talks about, and it's sort of working for us in our little practical area here in Southern Oregon.
0: You're able to take these ideas and put them together so that you have not only the -the on-the-ground skills and practices, but also the community development that's becoming this emerging cottagers co-op that pulls from some of these different ideas that kind of bridges the gap from Like the permaculture community, sometimes just wanting to do it our own way while also meeting some of the needs of the broader society, as you say, through some of these professional approaches, such as these contracts or other obligations that give a sense of security to the people who we're working with in these processes?
1: Yes. And now I'm going to go academic on. So it turns out that. Getting the support of government and even granting um, nonprofits and things requires definitions of category. Legislation cannot usually move forward defining categories unless there's been academic work in the form of papers being published that define concepts in a way that can be referred to technically, and then discussed by government bureaucrats, and then laws changed. A a really good example in Southern Oregon right now is the green rush, the marijuana industry, which has already collapsed to some extent. There is no category difference between a mom-and-pop organic, in-the-ground marijuana farm, where the hemp Marijuana might even be integrated into a polyculture. And the industrial paved greenhouse, energy intensive, maybe even chemical intensive investments that we are being bugged with in Southern Oregon. So some of us who are in these groups I've been vaguely referring to are actually meeting with county commissioners. And the county commissioners, in this case in Jackson County, happen to be, shall I say, paleoconservatives, and they, though, are business people. So they're going, well, what can we do? How can we make a definition difference? Well, it has actually gone to court in Josephine County, and it was decided there is no difference because there's not any defined categories. So I'm suggesting there's work for everyone at every level. And so some of the people I'm talking to, uh, Marisha Arabak, for instance, are in graduate school. And she took this discussion I'm having with you and went, oh, I'll talk to my major advisor and I'll write a paper that defines what a cottager is and defines it different from a caretaker and makes these points about taking care of land that has been abandoned, our forests. Let me say this big thing here, which is out here, all of the conifer forests above the snow line, above 4,000 feet, that's where the environmental fights have been, about clear-cutting, about, you know, forests. Those conifer forests are not what I'm talking about in social forestry. I think those should be left as I refer to them fog brooms. We live in this Mediterranean desert. We really need our ridgelines covered with needled conifer trees to get what moisture we can out of cloud systems moving through. They should be carefully managed as the top of the watershed. The lands that have been hammered in the West are the mid-elevation lands. These are between 2,000 and 4,000 feet. They're thoroughly eroded. Now they're having McMansions built all over them. And these McMansions are on degraded land that are streams down cut, horrible logging messes, heavily compacted. They're not even good for running cattle on anymore. And those land are what I'm talking about. That's where the cottagers' co-ops have some, have some purchase, which is Similar words, traction, right? I mean, traction and purchase are wonderful words. I, I love them because it, they, they have that texture of deep local. My toes are in the mud. I have purchase. So that's where we're looking at. We're looking at these degraded mid-elevation lands, and most of them are in private ownership.
0: And with all those lands in private ownership, you your cottagers can work on Developing the kinds of relationships that allow them the opportunity to do the -the on-the-ground work there.
1: Yes, and have a place to live at least most of the year. There's something in Oregon called temporary housing for seasonal workers. It's the building codes there. There's another concept in Oregon because this is a timber state called access to economic opportunity, and then you end up with things called forestry camps. And that allows almost year-round inhabitation. Now, most of the indigenous people out here had a semi-nomadic lifestyle. So the stories I've been talking about, the imaginations of positive futures, are semi-nomadic. So look at this picture I'm trying to paint. You have a footprint, but you're not there the entire year. You're there during the seasons that are most important for you to be doing the forestry work. And then you have work elsewhere that you do, and maybe that's going to market, as it were, or going to conference so that you're having these discussions between support groups using these general concepts that we have introduced in this discussion. And so this is an imagination thing, but it's also evolving out of my work with all my my colleagues. And a lot of them have a lot of background. I got the idea of forestry camp from Bill Burrell, who's Kalapuya. He has tribal background. Thank you very much. I mean, I, I want to give credit because that's deep traditional ecological knowledge. We got stuff from someplace. We didn't make it up ourselves. It's not designed. We're not going to charge royalty. We're not going to claim that we heroically invented something. We're trying to give credit and then work with gratitude. That's the reciprocation thing. Understand what we're getting from the forest and give back.
0: And with all of that practical and community work, and it sounds like there's some business development in there and a lot of other pieces that make it, well, to you can borrow the language, a holistic approach to working on some of these non-design social and economic needs which, while also fitting within the rules and bounds of the society that exists where does that all lead then to this other idea that you introduced at the beginning about optical surveying and how does that fit into this work of social forestry
1: Aha. so our subtitle to optical surveying is no batteries allowed and that sort of defines what i'm talking about again i'm lucky because i Went to forestry college in the 60s, and I learned hands on surveying with optical instruments. So, handheld and basic stuff. I like to say that one shouldn't jump into computer applications like CAD, computer aided design, until one has learned to do it on paper, on the ground. So, we're teaching a surveying course with pacing, with using your body, with very simple tools. My favorite is this handheld pocket transit made by Brunton, and it's made by Silva. They have a clinometer in them so that you can measure vertical angles, and they have a compass in them so that you can measure horizontal angles. So if you've got vertical angles, horizontal angles, and distance, you can do math. You can lay things out. You can figure out drainage. And so optical surveying course is these really basic skills that have pretty much not being taught anymore anyplace. In fact, I had a cartographer, a math maker, show up who found us somehow on the Internet. Like you said, we're kind of hard to find. And he said, I've been looking for these skills. I didn't know anybody was still teaching how to use an apnea. How do you use a hand level? How do you use a a rod? How do you, I mean, and no batteries. How do you use pencil and paper? So it's a really empowering thing, the course. And in the course, I also use a key line template to ground out these skills. So luckily, the work I did at Wolf Gulch Farm has eight ponds that I rebuilt and a whole bunch of key line systems. I have since worked with Darren Doherty and had a wonderful conversation with him about how Keyline is fragmented on the West Coast because it's an active geology. Let's not forget that Keyline was developed on a landscape that was billions of years old and highly mature as a landscape. So those of us that are working on these geologically active landscapes, we have to do what's called fragmentary Keyline. So there's a little clue, right, to how where your hand skills can get purchased on the landscape is through using the key line concepts and then using these hand tools and these hand skills and then actually seeing it, like building a swale. You can't build a swale on a slope that's greater than one in six. Oh, and then what did I just say? I just used a ratio. I didn't say inches. I didn't say feet. I used a proportion. I said one in six or one in four. Those are universal. You can go anywhere. I also am teaching people metric and English in the optical surveying course. Well, I wonder because we're having trouble running this course. People don't understand how useful it is until they take it, until they actually the optical survey, We don't know how to advertise it. People don't know they need this, that they need this in an urban situation. They need this in their lives. It's wonderful. All of a sudden, math makes sense. It's useful. You can do things with it.
0: You're really grounding all of these skills in a practical way, where once people get to use it, they can see the usefulness of it. But until then, it's so easy to feel that Our technology and everything else that we have, you know, I can load an app on a phone and I can walk to a corner, click a button to leave a mark, walk to another place, click another button, and eventually map out all these waypoints to define an area. But it doesn't speak to when those batteries are not there or the way that having these base skills, as you were referring to, provide us with a a level of deep learning.
1: Yes. And the map is not the territory there's a Bill Mollison quote, and he got it from somebody else. I recently saw where it have, it ultimately came from. but when you're using hand tools and when you're being social, working in crews, you have a different relationship to the landscape as you walk through it. You're able to get a lot more observations than just collecting this data that you can then bring up on your computer screen and start manipulating. That's alienated. Herman Marcuse said that the condition of modern people is alienation and fragmentation. Wow. That, I use that quote a lot. And it applies to optical surveying. You come into relationship with the land when you're using tools that don't get in between you and your work and that have the same relationship to your body and to the landscape that you do as a human, to the landscape. I hope that makes sense. And again, I have found that it's difficult to convince people that they're going to get this out of trigonometry (laughs) and that they're going to get this out of learning to do things that we're somehow intimidated by, but yet will very quickly go to a computer, like you said, and tag GPS points and... mapping.
0: I wonder sometimes about how our reliance on technology continues to create that disconnect because what you were referring to about the map not being the territory, I think about how with an app or something that just allows us to walk from point to point to point, we don't necessarily really have to observe what's going on around us. We don't have to worry about that pothole or where an animal's been digging. If we don't have to walk across the land, if we only have to move about the side of it or something like that, that we're just not immersed in the same way
1: yes, and there are a lot of observations to me, so notebooking, pencil and paper, and memory so I've been reading uh nicholas carr c a r r and franklin Forward, foer f o e r and their critique of screen time and what it's doing to our brain. And one of the things I think we all need to understand is that there's such a thing as deep memory. When we think we can just stash stuff in the cloud, we're making a huge mistake. We definitely need, first of all, hard copy, meaning library, on paper. And then second of all, we need our minds. We need our whole minds. And what screen time does to us is every time we go, we click on a link. Every time we surf around, we get dopamine rushes because we're in our short-term memory. We're in our forebrain, and it makes us feel smart because, oh, we've been places. But then if you actually test people, they can't, they have no recall. They have no deep memory. They're not memorizing anything. They're not learning anything. They're just feeling smart. And when they do the brain scans, there's three different types of memory. There's this short-term memory, which all of us use, and it's completely useful. But then there's um, memory management, which is the intermediary memory, which holds on to things for a little while and sort of decides whether to put it in deep memory or not. And then there's deep memory, which when I was in elementary school was called reading comprehension. How much do you, oh yeah, you just read it. How much did you understand that you just read? We now, as screen junkies, don't remember anything. And so in order to get the architecture of memory, that skill, which is oral tradition, which is storytelling, which is deep ecological knowledge, we're losing it very fast. And so, this is all still about surveying. We come into a relationship with the landscape when we memorize it. And our optical surveying tools are extensions of all our senses so that we use our entire mind and all our senses and we come into relationship with place. And then, if we have these stories, that we were taught as children at best, and luckily I had that that upbringing in, in the Adirondacks. When we come into relationship with place, it's a collection of stories. It's a collection of skills. It's a collection of relationships. It's a culture that we're living in. So it gets reinforced, and it allows us, as you asked earlier, to make this transmission, to hold everyone in this culture of place, in this relationship to place. And without that, we're going to make huge mistakes. And we have made huge mistakes. I mean, everything here on the West Coast, which some of my family was involved in long ago, has been extraction. We're not doing building and not just building culture, but building resilience. So out here in Western Oregon, the two big things are Return of salmon because of the phosphorus and the nitrogen loops out of the Pacific Ocean and the leaching of our soils, so we have a net loss of fertility, and the return of fire in the interior west because of a more local cycling of nutrients. And without the return of fire and the return of salmon, it's downhill. The forests are going to fail. Our soils are going to get worse and worse the carrying capacity is going to go down. And I think we need to talk more and more about carrying capacity. It's so difficult to measure. It's so difficult to imagine. And it's the key thing. Indigenous people made all kinds of cultural adjustments, including birth control, in order to live within the carrying capacity of their drainage basin. And are we thinking that way now? Yes, we're talking about water. Yes, we're talking, and especially Brock from Occidental Arts and Ecology, and his work on watersheds in California has been awesome. So we're mapping, we're thinking about the watersheds, but I think we can go in all these other dimensions that I just sort of put together in a story for you.
0: You really give a lot for what we can follow up on in the future. I'm hoping for additional conversations that we might be able to have, but also different places where listeners can explore these ideas further based on where they're individually called and what their interests are, from on-the-ground skills to community building to perhaps even taking on some of these issues politically so that we can communicate these ideas more clearly and be engaged in the process that's causing this kind of destruction and change it. I'm left a little (laughs) lost in my own way from our conversation today because of the the sheer amount of ideas that you shared with us from this long history that you have from your own story and then when it intersects with permaculture and then where you've kind of taken that further then in your own journey there on the ranch in that pocket desert doing design and work and sharing these skills with others. And Even with everything that you've shared with us today, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us through a story or from your own life before we draw this conversation to a close?
1: I would suggest people go to our website and explore it, as difficult a website as it is, understanding that we're a low budget operation. And I think people can start talking to elders, talking to old people, and getting. A sense of depth in their place. Like I said, stay home, work on it, figure out where you are, figure out what it is. And out of that will emerge the strategies and the opportunities. And again, to um, quote one of my favorite permaculture principles, we are surrounded by insurmountable opportunities. Thus, you see me going all over the place with this conversation. So, I do recommend that. And the other thing I recommend, which I hinted at, is folks, this is a long road and it starts with the children. So, I highly recommend children's pilgrimages. Wherever you have that special wild place in your neighborhood that you can get to fairly easily, I suggest that you story. That landscape, that special place. And that you take children out maybe four times a year, four seasons a year, and you walk through this special place and you tell this story time after time at this rock, at this water pool, at this old tree. And that those stories have to do with the rock and the pool and the tree. It's just what I got as a kid. And it was immensely powerful. It took my heart and it wedded it to my ancestral land, where my people have now been, although I left, (laughs) my people in Washington County have been there for 400 years. And I'm so lucky, I guess, to be able to report to you this, right? And to suggest that we can do this. We can do this now. Take our children, take them out into nature, And we can, in spirit, place. That's a verb. To in spirit, to put energy back into, to put story back into, to come into relationship with through stories, song, dance. And if we can get those traditions going again, that's a long ways down the road. The children will understand things in a palpable way. That then. They'll know what to do with the skills that they learn, and they'll be really wonderfully interested in learning those skills. That's the enthusiasm I was gifted with by my wonderful culture and my parents and my siblings, and it has carried me all this way through all these adventures to the point where I'm now telling big stories stories about the future, stories about how it could be good, how we might live. And how wonderful it might be, how it might feed us in so many ways. So I wish this to everyone, that they come into relationships, that they value those relationships, and their relationships with the universe. And I think that's healing to understand that we belong here, that we're part of this, and that there's reciprocation. There's things that you can't even imagine that happen to you. One of the things I say, because I have this forestry camp, is I get bossed around by the wildlife. Once I've been there long enough, place comes to me and tells me what I'm going to do that day. It's not my design. It's my attention. I'm listening carefully. I'm ready. Ready to be told what's up next.
0: You can find out more about Hazel and his work including upcoming social forestry and optical surveying classes at siskiupermaculture.com. In addition to the usual resources section in the show notes, you'll also find a recommended reading list that includes many of the books Hazel mentioned. Though there are more takeaways from this conversation than what I can readily cover in the few minutes that compose these closing notes, I find the vision of Deep Local incredibly compelling. I've spent most of my life in motion, but now spend more time working on slowing down, and seeing the world in focus, rather than as a blur passing by outside a car window. For me, that reflection and engagement of deep local is about getting to know the plants and animals in the landscape, but also the people and places we inhabit. The trails we walk, parks we create, the food we eat. To sit with friends and engage in a dialogue. The salon, which Hazel mentioned, in the act of deep listening and seeking to understand one another and create stronger social bonds to stop talking and start learning from the wisdom of those around us, to know we are not alone, and to share the joy of our lives. We're in this together. Let's celebrate that. Right here, right now, where we are. If you have any thoughts or questions from this conversation with Hazel, leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Visit the permaculturepodcast.com and click on Contact to send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Until the next time, dig deep and create the world you want to live in, where you are, by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. The Permaculture Podcast is a production of Permaneo Group. Find out more about the Permaculture Podcast, including the extensive archives, by visiting our website, thepermaculturepodcast.com. Learn more about Permaneo Group and other projects at Group dot com.